Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that the work that you've done is finished. On that cross, you won over the powers of, the, of all darkness, Lord, and you rose victorious. And that you have given us treasures in heaven, Lord, and you provided for every need that we have from your abundance, Lord. And Father, we would pray that your spirit would open up our eyes to more of what you've done for us. That we might live in the power and the blessing that you've given to us, Lord. And for so many of us, Lord, we spend our time struggling and striving. And yet what you say, Lord, is that it's done, it's complete. And so I pray, Lord, as we listen to your word, Father, I ask, Lord, that it would be you that speaks. And I pray, Father, that you would speak to each one of us individually, that you minister to me, Lord, and you minister to each person here. That the name of Jesus will be glorified. Amen. Now we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 5, 16 to 18. <clears throat> Sorry, I did it again, haven't I, John? 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. I had John getting the wrong scripture out earlier. So maybe there's something significant, except it's not a scripture, is it? There isn't in Corinthians, so it's not significant. It's just my brain not working properly. <laughs> but it says this, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, a few weeks ago, Liz talked about the giving thanks in everything, and Paul Rayner came along a couple of weeks later, and he spoke on exactly the same verse. And I was toying about talking about this last week, about praying without ceasing, and about rejoicing. And then I felt God was saying, no, talk about the finished work of Christ. And I think that this is all related anyhow. Because I think what God wants us to do is to come to a point where we're resting in what he's done, not in trying to achieve something of ourselves, but to rest in the completed work. And what Ralph and Coral were talking about earlier, about, about the healing, that Christ has done it, he's opened the way. All these things are really important. But there's so many of us wonder what God's will is for us in our lives. And I was talking to someone during the week and they said, I, I still don't know what God wants for my life. I keep praying, but I still don't want to know what he wants. And yet Paul tells us here quite clearly what the will of God is for each one of us. It's to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. So we have to ask the question, why did God save us? Was it just so that we could share the gospel and see other people come to him? And there are some preachers that say that. The only reason you're saved is that you can go and share the gospel. While the proclamation of the gospel and evangelization of the world is important, it's not God's only reason that he saved us. There is something more, something more central to God's heart and the Westminster Confession says something like this, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 
not only to glorify him, but we're to enjoy him. And that's what our purpose is. That's what God created us for. He created us for fellowship. And if you remember in the beginning with Adam and Eve, before their sin, before there was any salvation, God had fellowship with them. That's what he wanted to restore. And I spoke last week about how Christ came to restore that relationship. So we've been saved and restored for fellowship with God. The sin that separates us and estranged from God has been dealt with on the cross and the way to him is open. And we can boldly come into his presence having had our hearts cleansed from a guilty conscience. Every sin, past, present and future has been taken care of in the death of Christ. Every single sin that you've ever committed, that you ever will commit has been taken care of. And there's no longer to do what Adam and Eve did and hide away. He accepts us as we are and yet loves us enough that we might understand the, and reveal the transforming work that Christ has already done for us so that we can live in the fullness of it. And a frequent prayer of Paul's for those he ministered to was that they should know him. And the word know is not just head knowledge and so often when we think about knowing God, we think about just knowing about him, knowing good theology and all this, but it's about experiential knowledge. And he wants a relationship with us. And when we think about these things, it becomes obvious why Paul gives these instructions to the Thessalonians. God's will for us centres around activities that, have, that are about relating to God. And we, let's look at this, rejoice always. The NIV puts it, be joyful. Rejoicing and joy is a prominent feature in both the Old and the New Testament. If you notice in, in the Psalms, it's full of, of rejoicing. And I was quite interested as I looked at the word in, um, rejoice throughout the, the Bible, how many times it's mentioned in the law um, about rejoicing in God. And the, the, the Old Testament word has a number of different meanings. There are a number of different words that are translated rejoice, and I won't give you them because I can't pronounce them for a start. <coughs> Spin with joy, it can mean. Jump for joy, shout for joy, brighten up, be cheerful. All of these things are part of the rejoicing of, of God's people. And some of them are quite physical, some of them are... Uh, um, like brightening ourselves up, about, about stirring up the joy within us. And the Greek word that translated joy means to be full of cheer, calmly happy, well-off, joyful. So we see Paul here tells the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. See, again, Paul emphasises to the Philippians as well as the Thessalonians, to rejoice in the Lord always. And if you remember the story, the Philippians had a great object lesson for this. In Acts 10, we see how Paul and Silas go into Philippi, having had this vision that they should go to Macedonia to preach the gospel. And for many days, they are, they are going around the city preaching the gospel, and this servant girl follows them who's demonized and keeps on bringing attention to herself. And after many days, Paul just gets so fed up with her and with this demon 
that she, he cast the demon out of this girl. And those who owned her are not happy. And both he and Silas end up being beaten and chucked into a filthy jail. But what did they do? They didn't complain. They didn't sit there feeling sorry for themselves. They didn't say, we got it wrong, we should never have come here. They didn't accuse God of misleading them. After all, it was them that called them by the vision. They prayed and worshipped God. Rather than have a pity party, they had a praise party. All the prisoners were listening to them, praising and worshipping their God. And we're told in the scripture at midnight something remarkable happened. And I like this. I read this somewhere this week. God heard their praise and tapped his feet along with them. And he caused an earthquake. <laughs> and uh, the chains fell off. And they, uh, and they, went, and they, they were freed. You know, I want us to understand this because so often we, 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 we can take something and think like it's a principle We're very good at taking principles out of the Bible. But I don't believe that Paul and Silas were praising and worshipping God because they knew that he would come along and break their chains and cause an earthquake and let them be free. It was not a principle that they were employing. This is not just a way of getting out of jail. If if you're in jail, you praise God, God's going to send the earthquake. It's not like that. And yet so often that can be the way that we think as, as modern Christians. And so much of what we read and hear like, is a bit like the how-to books that, we, that the world loves as well, the self-help books. And then the problem is, is we replace relationship with principles. And that's not what God wants. He doesn't want us to live by principles. He wants us to live by a, a living relationship with him. I think Paul and Silas prayed and worshipped God because that's what they always did. They just did it anywhere and they happened to be in a jail. It was just part parcel of who they were. They praised and they worshipped God. They knew that he could be trusted. They knew he hadn't deserted them. They glorified in all that he had done for them. And it just permeated their life. In Acts 5, we see the apostles were arrested and beaten by the Sanhedrin because they were preaching Jesus after they'd been forbidden to do so. And in verse 1 of Acts, verse 41 of Acts 5, it says, So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Imagine that. They were rejoicing. Having been beaten, they left rejoicing because they, they, they... they were counted worthy of suffering shame. Jesus said, Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And we can see this in these examples. It strengthened them, the joy of the Lord, and it led to rejoicing. Joy and rejoicing are very close concepts. 
The word for joy in the Greek means cheerfulness, calm delight, gladness. In the book of Nehemiah, the law is read and explained to the people for the first time in years. And after they heard it, the people wept and mourned. But Nehemiah tells the people not to weep, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And I believe God wants us to be a people of praise, a people of rejoicing. People who rejoice in just who he is and who rejoice in what he's done. And in a world where there's so much trouble that we all suffer, the joy of the Lord is our strength and it's expressed in rejoicing. So if Nehemiah could tell the people to rejoice at the reading of the law, which Paul says no one could keep and it just it, it condemns, if Nehemiah could say rejoice for that, how much more should we rejoice in the great salvation that Jesus has done and the grace that's now shown to us? It's, it's a place for great rejoicing that God has come and set us free and he's restored the relationship that we lost. Of course, Paul goes on to say to the Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. And prayer is to be the centre of our lives. But I think the problem is, is we've often made it into a religious act. And it's something sometimes we even measure someone's spirituality by. This person prayed four hours a day, you know, how spiritual they are. Um, and, then we, and then we often feel, well, actually, I can guarantee I can make every one of you feel guilty in an instant, I've only got to ask two questions. And that is, how is your prayer life? And do you pray enough? And I can almost guarantee that each one of us will feel slightly condemned and guilty by it. But prayer is not something that's supposed to be used to measure ourselves or other people by. It's not supposed to be that. And I know we all know this, but it is simply talking to God. It's having fellowship with our Father. And prayer is something that should permeate our lives. <coughs> a few weeks ago, Paul Rayner quoted this part of St. Patrick's um, prayer. And I was looking it up because I was thinking there was a bit missing. In I, I thought it was the whole prayer, and I was thinking, oh, they, he missed something. But this is the whole prayer. It is Christ with me. Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in every eye that sees me, and Christ in every ear that hears me. And this is obviously a man who knew that our relationship permeated the whole of our life. And the bit that I thought Paul was missing from the prayer, not that Paul had missed it, but was missing from the prayer, was the Christ in me. We talk about Christ being by the side of me, in front and behind, but Christ is in us. And when you put a sponge into water, where's the water? It's in the sponge, and the sponge is in the water. And we are immersed in God. 
And we live in that presence all the time. There's no way that we can be separated from because his spirit is united with us. And he's with us every single moment of the day. He's with us when we're at work, or on the computer, watching TV, gardening, doing our daily ablutions. He's there even when we sin and fall. There's not a moment when he is not present. And our problem is, is that we're just not aware of him. In fact, if you think about it, Adam and Eve didn't even have that same relationship. We're not told that he lived within them in that way that he has with us. God's done something special and he regenerated us. And I think that's the heart of our prayer. Prayer is about, is about communing with God. And so often we think of prayer as just asking things of him when it's about praising him, rejoicing with him. Just saying, Father, I love you. That's prayer. I can remember many years ago I read a book by R.A. Torrey, and I can't remember the exact quote, but he was talking to someone who had problems with prayer, and he told them to imagine the best father in the world scooping you up in his arms and putting you on his knee and talking to you and talking with him. And I just that for me at that time in my Christian life, I hadn't been a Christian very long, it was just such wonderful advice that we have a dad who just wants to scoop us up and wants to, us to sit with him and chat with him. I, I don't know if you've heard of the book or read the book by Brother Lawrence, The, the Practice of the Presence of God. It's a, quite an old classic that was written in 1600 and something. And it, it's Catholic. It was written by... Um, someone who was a layman in the Carmelite order. And um, Brother Lawrence was a big, clumsy man um, who was always breaking things. He was supposed to be, you know, a bit of a clumps, really. Um, and he got saved at the age of 18 when he saw a leaf that was dead. And he realized that God would make green leaves and somehow in the spring. And somehow it opened his heart up to God and he came to know the Lord. Um, but he wasn't accepted into the order because, probably because he lacked education, because he was an uneducated man. But he joined as a lay member. And he sought his, throughout his life to bring every moment of the day into the presence of God. And um, in the book, it's written sort of, he's been doing this for 40 years. And he said he knew the presence of God as much picking up a piece of straw from the kitchen floor where he worked, as he did at the times of devotion. And he sought to make that, in, that constant chatter that we have, that constant inner chatter, to, into a prayer. And I, I think one of the lovely things about the book is there's the impression of the lightness that he held it, because he realised there were things he had to do, so he couldn't always have this going on. But he didn't feel condemned by that. He just simply turned back to God when he had the time. Um, knowing that God was with him even in those busy times. Because that communion is going on even when we don't know it. Paul says that the Spirit, um, the Spirit helps us and intercedes for us within us. This is part of God's finished work. 
The Spirit of God is always working and interceding for us. Now, I know that could be talking in tongues, and I believe that's part of it. Our prayer language is, is, a, is a wonderful thing. But it's something more than that. The Spirit himself helps in us. I did a search on intercession for the Bible because intercession is a big thing that we all talk a lot about. And what I was amazed to find um, was the word intercession is hardly moved, hardly mentioned at all. And when it is mentioned, it's talking about Jesus interceding for us and the Holy Spirit interceding for us, which just sort of turns everything on its head from whatever I thought. I thought intercession was about grasping God to get him to come and bless people. But actually, intercession is what Christ does for us. That's not to say we shouldn't pray for other people. The other thing, as I was looking at prayer generally, because I, I did a general quick search for how often about Paul's prayers and what he got people to pray for, I, not once can I, and I'm not saying it's wrong, so don't get me wrong, not once can I say, do I hear him talk, tell them to pray for unbelievers. It's always about praying that they might have the strength to, to proclaim the gospel, praying for one another, that we might be strengthened in our inner man, that we might be a witness. Because so often we spend our time calling down and asking God to come and send his spirit upon people, and yet Jesus tells us that his spirit has been sent to bring conviction and to show them of judgment. The spirit has been sent. But what we have to do is to live out that finished work that we were talking about and to actually move out and to, to, and when we move out, God uses us. And I say this as the biggest coward in the world. I'm no evangelist, I will admit. But I can see that this is what God has done for us. And it only becomes applicable when we start to move out in it. And I think that's what, um, what uh, um, Ralph and Coral were finding. As they went out and did it, God honoured. Because that's what God does. Now, so what, I will conclude this. In fact, I, was, I, I have to admit, I was working on this this morning. And uh, we ran out of time and I had to go out the door quickly. <laughs> um, but... What I want to convey to us this morning is, is that's what God's will for us is. To rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, however we might do that. Not to do it under condemnation, not to feel that we, we somehow fell, but just to know it's just relation, having a relationship with Dad. And in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for Christ Jesus for you. So we just pray. Father, we make things so complicated sometimes. And over the years, there's so many different layers the church has laid upon, upon your word and so many things that have been laid upon us, Lord, that sometimes it takes our eyes from the simplicity of the gospel. And we would ask, Father, that you would deal with those things that would stop us from relating to you in that closeness, Lord, or at least our eyes would be open to, the, to that relationship that we already have, Father, because that's the point, isn't it, Lord, is that you, we already have that relationship. It's just that we, we forget. 
And we ask, Lord, that throughout this week you would just constantly be reminding us that you're there, whether it's in times of joy or in sorrow, that you're there and that your spirit is within us and that he's crying out, Abba, Father, to you. And that he's in us and he's interceding for us. And that Jesus is at your right hand interceding for us as our high priest. And may we have confidence, Lord, not in what we might do in improving ourselves, but in what you've already done for us. That the eyes of our hearts would be opened, Lord, that we might understand the depth and the height and the width of your love and to know you are beyond, know your will and to know that love that is beyond understanding. Father, we thank you for the time that we've had together this morning. We thank you for your presence here. And Lord, we just lift each one of us up Pray, Father, that you would remind us of one another, that we might pray for one another this week as well. That you would just gently remind us and that you would use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if there was another song.